This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this Thanksgiving week to the Bible Line. So glad you can join us. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we will be happy to take your questions. Maybe there's a text of Scripture you're studying or you're looking for a biblical application for a particular dimension of your life or ministry. Feel free to call us for our Savannah listeners and those who listen online at wagp.net. The 843 exchange is 525-1859, or if it's easier for you to remember, the toll-free number is 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. When you call, you're welcome to go on the air live. Some folks are a little nervous about doing that, so we're happy to uh, have you dictate your question, and we will answer it that way. We do give uh, primary uh, focus to live callers, but a lot of people email us in every week, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. All right, Rick, we're ready to jump in with both feet. By God's grace, let's get started. All right, Pastor, I don't think we've ever had a question like this. Natalie writes, I'm interested in getting eyebrow microblading done because One, it saves time to get ready and go to work each morning by not having to put my eyebrow makeup on daily, time I could spend with my family at the breakfast table. And two, it looks good. With that said, I'm convicted because it's considered a semi-permanent tattoo, and I don't know what my position on tattoos is. Not to mention, it dances on a fine line of vanity in my mind, as does makeup, nice clothing, certain hairstyles, and jewelry in general. Uh, Believe it or not, it... um, I've uh, read many verses about tattoos, uh, matters of the heart, etc., yet I can still see both sides. Since I'm aware the ways of man can seem pure in in their own eyes and society can and does drift away from the truth, no matter what generation you're in or what the fad is, I want to seek an outside perspective. I am a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and have been for many years. Uh, When I sought my husband's advice on the matter, he didn't see any harm in microblading. However, he didn't do any research or provide any grounding for this position. Because I want to seek God's will, not my own, I want an outside perspective from someone like you who often can make things seem clear. Thank you in advance. All right. Well, um, you know, I grew up in the home of an ophthalmologist, and my dad, you know, would engage us with discussions on the eye and Dad, what's the function of an eyebrow? Why do we need eyebrows? He said, next time you're out in the yard working hard, without an eyebrow, you'll immediately notice it. The sweat will roll right off your forehead into your eye, and those salty tears won't feel the best. So the designer, God, put eyebrows there for a reason. And you are eliminating something that designer put in if you microblade, where, you know, basically they take your eyebrows off, and then they 
tattoo with a little special pen, uh, um, little eyebrow lashes, so to speak, or and it supposed to, yeah, be maintenance free. I don't know how long it lasts, but I think a couple of years or something. And uh, but God put an eyebrow there for a reason, you know. If you think about it too, and uh, the eyebrow itself helps you to identify people. Um, there's certain, um, you know, folks that you can immediately recognize by their eyebrows, and maybe you've become more sensitive to this since the wearing of a mask uh, with uh, coronavirus, or you see a lot about a person's personality, sometimes through their eyebrows, how they are handling their eyebrows. Now, I know, you know, sometimes people have faceless and and everything else, and they can't even function their eyebrows because their face has been stretched up into their scalp. And so they're there for a reason, just like eyelashes. You know, God put eyelashes there for a reason. I know women sometimes put on these extra long eyelashes, but again, my dad would tell me, no, your eyelashes designed by the maker. It's uh, not too long. It's not too short. And when pieces of uh, sand and debris come, it gives you a chance for your eye to respond with a blink before the dirt potentially gets into your eye. And so if they were any longer or any shorter, then that would affect their function. So, uh, you know, start there first. In terms of the tattoo itself, The passage that comes to mind is in Leviticus chapter 19, and it's an interesting passage, and it's sometimes ignored in the day that we live in, but God says here in Leviticus 19 in verse 28, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor, here's the second aspect of the command, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself, I am the Lord. Now, some folks would say, well, that's just Old Testament doesn't apply. Well, look, there's a lot of things in this whole section of Scripture that I don't think you can say, well, that's just part of the ceremonial law. There are certainly aspects of ceremonial law through this section of Scripture, but not exclusively. For instance, in the same section, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch, uh, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. So some people would take their babies and they'd offer them to the false pagan god Moloch. Uh, He said, you shall not have intercourse with an animal. Uh, That's not repeated anywhere, by the way, in the New Testament. Uh, But God considers that a perversion, an abomination for whoever does these things. Again, the same pericope of Scripture is an abomination. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He goes on, and that's the previous chapter. The following chapter speaks against, you know, such, such sins as homosexuality. So before you are like too quick to say this is some Old Testament passage. Let me remind you that Jesus said, whoever invalidates the least of these commandments shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm not going to be quick to write this off and say this just is some Old Testament expression and it has no application for today. I think that would be a gross error. And of course, um, in Bible times, people would brand the names of pagan gods you know, onto their skin and so there are a number of motivations for why people would get a tattoo. But God made the body, and it's to be protected. It's to be honored. And God not only redeemed our soul and spirit, he also will someday complete our salvation when we get a redeemed body. Uh, a couple of other things just to consider 
forget, you know, whether this is ceremonial or moral law. I think it is moral law. I think this is part of God's moral law. And that's why for virtually 2,000 years of church history, every preacher saw it as moral law, and they preached against, you know, a Christian getting a tattoo. Orthodox Jews to this day, and I say Orthodox to define them from those who are so-called Reformed Jews or conservative Jews, which are not conservative at all, but different branches of Judaism that don't really respect the Torah and the rest of the scriptures. Uh, Orthodox Jews for, you know, 2,000 years, for 6,000 years, have taken the writings of Moses, about 1400 B.C., and have affirmed that these things are applicable today. And so the Orthodox are against ever wearing a tattoo because they see it as part of God's moral law as well. With that said, there are some other principles to consider. You know, First Timothy 2, for instance, when he's addressing the uh, dress of a woman, and you, you bring up um, uh, this uh, issue of you, you want to be careful with your jewelry. And again, there's no prohibition against jewelry. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair in gold and pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works. This is one of the not buts of Scripture. Not this, but this. Not this totally exclusively, but this. So Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves, but friends. Again, one of the not buts of Scripture. You're still a slave, and you will see in many of the apostles' writings in the New Testament, they identify themselves as bond slaves of Christ. So we're still a slave, but we're more than a slave. And so his point in First Timothy is that, you know, your focus should be modest, discreet, um, and not focus purely on the externals, but the internals. And in First Peter brings out that same principle as well. But when you think about, for instance, dressing discreetly, uh, you know, a woman could be dressed modestly, but not necessarily discreetly and that she can call attention to herself. And I think, generally speaking, a tattoo draws attention to the person rather than to the God whom we are called to glorify. Whatever you do, you're all you're to do for the glory of God. But the fact that this sister who writes has some questions and doubts in her mind, I would take that from being from the Lord. In uh, Romans 14, 23, it says, whatever is not from faith is sin. So a good general principle is when in doubt, cut it out. And the fact that you're wrestling on the inside, I think that's more than just you. I think that's the Spirit of God wrestling with you. Listen, uh, sometimes people will use passages like 1 Corinthians 9 to justify a tattoo. And I know we have many new Christians who listen to our station, and so I don't assume anything in terms of your exposure to Scripture But Paul says, uh, though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though myself not being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without the law, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. 
So I do all these things for the sake of the gospel. So some have used this text to say, well, that's uh, what I'm doing. I'm getting a tattoo to be all things to all men. Well, it's interesting with these categories that Paul lists to those who are with the law, I became like I was under the law. To those without the law, like I was not under the law. And again, there he's dealing with, you know, ceremonial external practices. If he um, were with uh, certain Jewish people out of respect uh, for things that they were still practicing and not to become a stumbling block to preaching the gospel, he would adapt his behavior without being hypocritical. Um, And so a tattoo is really a one-way street. Once you have it, you can't discard of it. And there are some people who will write you off if you have a lot of tattoos, especially if they're, you know, on your face or neck or they'll see you as extreme. Uh, And so you will lose an audience where if you don't have any tattoo at all, uh, you are not losing an audience and you're just relying on the power of God's word. You know, I think what's happening in our day where, you know, it used to be, uh, there used to be a slogan that certainly doesn't remain true anymore, but not everyone who has a tattoo is in prison, but everyone who's in prison has a tattoo. And that was a general principle for derelict behavior. And I would say more and more today, that is a general principle today for immoral behavior. People who live for sensuality, more and more they get a tattoo. And so a young girl gives up her virginity and the next thing you know, she has a tattoo and she's sending a message. Now, again, I'm not broad brushing that. And let me just say, too, for people who have a lot of ink on them, because I baptize people nearly every week and not every week, but most weeks there's ink, there's tattoos sometimes that are not always visible, but they're on the feet and the hands and the arms. And, you know, and you can't get rid of those things easily anyway. But they can be a reminder that God has saved me from a past life. And so uh, you can use it as a springboard. And certainly there are tattoos that people have that were not associated with immorality. A sailor might get an anchor put on his arm. But the question is, do you do it or not? And, And God says, don't make these marks on your body. And I don't take that as part of the ceremonial law any more than what he says in the first half of the verse, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead. And again, that was a practice that you'll see with the priests of Baal in 1 Kings 18, where they're cutting themselves. And God says, don't do that. This is part of God's moral law that is still binding today. So when you put these principles together, does it glorify God? Does it draw attention to myself? Um, Tattooing is a one-way street. You cannot use the argument on being all things to all men because you can only draw that line in one direction. And the fact that you doubt seriously should all be reason enough not to get it, not to mention the function of the eyebrow was put there by your creator for a reason. And I don't think you want to dismiss that. Anyway, that's a good question. I don't think we've ever had that before in terms of microblading and intersecting that with tattooing, but it's a reasonable question. I'm glad you asked it. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, you can also email us at tbl at wagp.net, as has Mary Beth from Orangeburg, who writes simply, tell me about cremation. Well, cremation, uh, it's a good question. 
and it's one that comes up from time to time on the Bible line. Uh, when did cremation start? What are its roots? Uh, what should Christians do? You know, we crossed the line in 2018. For the first time in American history, we had more people who were cremated than were buried. And so our authority as Christians is what does God say? Does he give us any kind of a pattern or dictate as to what we should do? There is not a command in Scripture, thou shalt not burn the body. Uh, But I do think we find a pattern in Scripture that God's Word teaches that Christians should practice burial. There's a reason why all the patriarchs were buried. Uh, as, As you step into the New Testament, John the Baptist was buried. Ananias and Sapphira, though disobedient Christians... They had a burial. Um, The Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul addresses the resurrection of the body in that great resurrection chapter, he likens a burial to planting a seed in the ground. So there's an assumption in 1 Corinthians 15 that every believer will be buried. Likewise, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he describes the catching up of the church, there is an assumption that we will be buried. We shall not all sleep, will not all die, um, he tells us, but in the twinkling of an eye, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we're going to be caught up in the air. In similar language here in 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about those who are dead or asleep, a metaphor for death, so that you don't grieve like pagans, those who have no hope, Because he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's the confession we make at our baptism, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, there's an assumption here that they have been buried. The dead come out of the graves. The same picture is given in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, where there he's dealing of the unrighteous graves. Uh, in John 5, Jesus says there's coming an hour when people will hear the voice of the Son of Man. Some will be resurrected to life, some to death. But the practice of burial for the body, not burying ashes, but the body itself, is what is pictured in 1 Corinthians 15 and given by example where the term burial is used of the patriarchs. On one occasion, God himself performs a funeral. It's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And if you're looking for a definitive text where God is the caretaker of the body, he, the Lord, Yahweh, buried Moses, the text says. And so that's good reason. Practically, and and by the way, I should say parenthetically here, though there's not a command, thou shalt not cremate, there are many things that we do in the church and Jews do to this day that we do by example and not by a specific command. Technically, there's not a command in Scripture to have deacons. Uh, There is a command for elders. I, I ask you to appoint elders in every city. But there's no such command for deacons, but there's an assumption that the local assembly will have two offices, the office of elder and the office of deacons. So it's modeled for us by precept and by example in the early church. So that's a good reason to uh, practice 
burial because that's the model that God gives in both the Old and the New Testaments. If you go to Israel today, no one is cremated. No one is cremated. A few years ago, some very liberal Jewish people tried to put up a crematory and within um, its completion, within a matter of hours, the place was destroyed by Orthodox Jews and other Jews. Of course, for them, too, I'm sure they associate cremation with what happened to some six million Jews in the gas chambers. And then as they were burned and cremated under Hitler's Hitler's SS. Um, with that said, very practically, if you as a pastor are doing a funeral and there's no body, you lose a lot of punch to the funeral. Sometimes there's an urn. Sometimes there's not even an urn. Sometimes there's just a picture. Sometimes there's an urn and a picture. But when you have a body, wow, you are sending a message. And when people walk up to the casket, there is an outpouring of grief that sometimes overflows, which I think is healthy. That's part of the grieving process. And, you know, you don't see nearly as many tears when someone has been cremated. And I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funerals. And I'm telling you, there's a stark difference. And remember, this is your last will and testament. And usually at everyone's funeral, there's some lost family members, relatives, friends that will come. And this might be your last opportunity to have a pastor preach the gospel through your life. And you want basically to follow God's pattern. You say it's more expensive. Forget the expense. Look, you're going to spend money on things that are important to you. You want a DVD player in your car. Well, I guess they don't put those in anymore. You know, you want a navigation system in your car. I'm going to spend that money. You know, it's only $700, but I'm going to get that nav system in my car. Well, you know, you spend money on what's important to you. And you should plan ahead and and it doesn't have to be some $6,000 coffin. Technically, you can have a pine box. And in South Carolina, you can still be buried in a sheet and dropped in the ground unless that particular county has some ordinance uh, against it. I say the county, the cemetery has an ordinance against it. And some of them do because uh, the cemeteries are owned by, you know, an undertaker who would prefer not only for you to have a casket, but a vault and everything else. But it doesn't have to be nearly as expensive as you need it to be. Now, think about cremation here for a second. The first cremation in America, I always remember the date, it's 1876, 100 years after the founding of our nation. And as time grew on, it grew, and it largely grew through the Unitarians who wanted to send a message They wanted to raise their puny little fist in the face of Almighty God to say, we don't believe in bodily resurrection. We don't believe in life after death, as the traditionalists believe. See what your God can do with this body. And so they started to cremate. And it was unthinkable for Bible-believing Christians to practice cremation until about 30 years ago, because as biblical ignorance grew in our nation, so the practice of cremation grew with it. So I I think you're hearing my voice. I don't believe in cremation. Now, if you say, well, Pastor Carl, I'm going to be cremated. Will you do my funeral? Yes, I will. And I'm not going to, at the funeral, you know, say, well, this person should have been buried. But I'll tell you what I will do if you are buried. I will at the gravesite say, this brother or this sister in Christ has chosen 
the biblical practice on how to deal with the body. And let me just say again, Christians are never consistent. You know, sadly, I've had to do funerals for a number of children over the years, either infants or young children who have died. Not a whole lot, but probably a dozen in my 40 years of ministry, 40-plus years of ministry. And they never want to cremate the little baby. They always want to bury the little baby. Why, it's just unthinkable for them to take an infant or a two-year-old and and let's cremate this little person. No, there was just like, oh, that child's body is precious. We identified with that child through the body. But somehow as people get old and crusty and they begin to think differently. So those are just some things to ponder. I should add to give a complete answer. There is a text in 1 Samuel 31 where Saul's bodies are uh, mutilated by the Philistines. They're hung on a wall. And if you go to Israel with me, we go to this very place. Um, And when uh, they came, uh, the Jewish people, to take his bodies down, they did burn the flesh off because it was virtually impossible to transport the bodies. But even then... They took the bones and they buried the bones. And that was a standard Jewish practice. They would have like a family tomb and you would be put in uh, a cloth and buried. And eventually after the flesh had rotted off of the bones, they would then put the bones in an ossuary. It's a little box. And so you could have multiple family members buried in the same cave. Uh, And that was a process that they used. But again, Jews never practiced cremation and those Jews that still believe in the Bible, they still don't. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Darlene from Myrtle Beach writes, where in the Bible does it say, when the kingdoms of this world become our Lord's? Well, it doesn't technically say that. Um, in Revelation chapter uh, 11, It says, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so if you remember, when you come to Revelation 6, uh, there is a prophecy that is being fulfilled. There's a few books in the Bible where God actually gives us an outline of the Bible within the Bible itself. We spoke about this uh, in my last message from Acts. Acts eight is an outline of the book of Acts. It's a prophecy. And so John is um, greeted by the Lord, and we're told in Revelation one nineteen, write the things which you have seen, and he does that. That's Revelation chapter 1. And the things which are, and he does that, that's Revelation chapters 2 and 3 of uh, the seven churches that he addresses. And the things which will take place metatata after these things. So when you come to four one, you come to a hinge verse after these things. And so you're immediately alerted. In fact, he says after these things twice. And so chapter four through the rest of the book is futuristic. And so you're in that section where the uh, STS, the sealed trumpet, STB and the bold judgments are being unfolded. And so when you come to the uh, uh, seventh uh, seal, in the seventh seal are seven trumpets. And when you come to the seventh trumpet, 
and the seventh trumpet are seven bold judgments. And so when the seventh angel sounded, uh, there's these loud voices in heaven, and you think, well, it's all over. Well, for all practical purposes, it is. Because, again, the mid-term of the tribulation period is the abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist goes into the temple and makes himself out to be God, and that begins the fury of the trumpet judgments. So the seal judgments all take place in the first three and a half years, and the trumpet and bowl judgments take place in the second half, and the bowl judgments take place right at the end of the second half. So for all practical purposes, it's over because the bowl judgments come in rapid succession. But it says the kingdom of the world. Now, some English translation uh, take this word kingdom that is singular in every Greek manuscript, and they pluralize it, and they make it kingdoms uh, to make it read a little bit smoother. But the Greek New Testament says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so that's an important announcement because at this point, the kingdom of the world has been the kingdom of the beast or the Antichrist who's united the whole world. And Satan, of course, remember, originally offered the Lord Jesus and the temptation that's recorded in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, all the kingdoms, plural, of the world. But, of course, he, he rejected that offer because the only legitimate way for him to become lord over the kingdom of this world was through the cross, something that God had for Adam, but he rejected through sin. But now the kingdoms of the world have become one kingdom. And so it's singular, the kingdom of the world. So it's in Revelation uh, chapter 11 and in verse 15. And this is when... Uh, it's a preview that Jesus is coming back where he will rule and reign and the promises that he made to Israel that were unconditional in nature, where he would rule and reign uh, sovereignly over the whole world. This is referenced, of course, prophetically in Psalm 2 by King David. It has now become a reality, but we tend to put it in the plural, especially because of Handel's Messiah that you hear every year at Christmas. And they use the rendering from the King James Version. Uh, But it is kingdom singular. And that's important in terms of the structure of Revelation. Because at this point, the kingdom of the world is the kingdom of the Antichrist with his one world kingdom. But it's going to become the kingdom of God's Messiah, his Christ. Good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller who's waiting. We do indeed. Carl from Buford is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Hey, good morning, Carl. Doing all right, brother? Yeah, I'm still, I'm still out here making it. Yes, sir. All right, all right. Yeah. Tell, tell me what's on your mind. <laughs> um, now, you answered the thing about tattoos. I want to know, uh, we had a Bible class, you know, off hours, and this brother been in the class. Well, he's not here in the church anymore, but he was in the class for a good while. And he had a lot of tattoos. But then he came back with a fresh tattoo. After being in, supposed to be baptized and everything, would you consider him still lost? I'll hang up and hear your answer. I think I know the brother you're referring to. And he had more ink on him than anyone I've met in my life. And he, um, 
came from a pretty rough life, uh, spent some years in prison and largely through drug abuse, which for many, sadly, is the entryway into prison because you become so addicted and enslaved to these drugs that in the process you steal or you'll do virtually anything, sometimes murder. He had not murdered anyone, but he had lived a pretty deviant life. And he was kind of scary looking uh, when I first met him uh, with the tattoos. I mean, just everywhere. With that said, he came to meet the pastor and he humbly bowed his heart and received Jesus as his Lord. And it was really a marvelous conversion. Uh, With that said, he was part of an alcohol ministry that kind of was up and down here in the community. It had very poor leadership. One of the guys was basically a ripoff artist and was scamming folks and playing off of we're here to help alcoholics and, you know, drug addicts for Christ and you know, they had a raffle with a brand new Harley motorcycle and yeah, you can, you know, win this beautiful Harley motorcycle and raffle tickets or a buck a piece or whatever. And of course, every raffle ticket sold, he put the money in his pocket and kept the motorcycle and everything else. Um, that brother was not here very long and I don't think he probably had any exposure at all to what I even taught, or more importantly, what God's Word says on the subject of tattoos. So look, uh, Christian people can be converted and go out the next day after they're saved and get a tattoo. To the one who knows the right thing and does it not, to him it is sin. And so many people don't even know certain issues, and God progressively deals with us in the Christian life. The day you're converted, you're a babe in Christ. You still carry a lot of the world all over your your lifestyle. But because there's been genuine repentance and faith in Christ, you're a new creation, and the old things pass away, and all things become new. But there's a progressive dimension to the process of sanctification, and it takes time. And really, I don't question this brother's conversion. I think it was real and dramatic, Uh, He's moved back to the state he was from. Um, In fact, the great thing about that ministry is there was another person who was born again, and they would bring these guys to meet the pastor, and a number of them met Christ as their Savior. Uh, There were two twins that the dad called me all the way from California. He just wanted to thank me. He said his sons had been engaged in, in drug abuse for over a decade of their life, and they were just like, totally different people. That's what conversion does. And he was just thrilled. And one of those sons is back in California and studying uh, to become a pastor. So you just never know how God is going to work. But I would not say that just because he got a tattoo six months later, a year later, or whatever it was, that he was not a Christian. In fact, a person could be totally informed about what God says and get out of fellowship with God. And maybe some girlfriend that, yeah, I want you to get a tattoo with me branded on you. And, you know, and they do stupid things. Um, so Christians can are capable of any kind of sin at all, possible, anything at all. Anyway, good question, Carl. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and, uh, 
uh, getting back to our, I also want to remind you that we do go ahead and put these um, Bible lines on the, um, uh, there we go. On the internet, wagp.net. So how, how soon do we post them after the program is over? An eh, hour within or so. a half hour or so. Yeah, so, and these are great things to share. And we also, um, on Instagram, usually we'll put a question up and how can people, is that CBC's Instagram or is that WAGP's? Uh, that is CBC's Instagram. So how do people follow us at uh, Instagram on Community Bible Church? So uh, just go to um, Instagram and uh, I believe it's uh, do a search for uh, CBCBFT. CBCBFT, we'd love for you to follow us on Instagram and um, some uh, great events and sermon notifications and other things that, again, you can share with other people that can be a fantastic tool in winning people to Christ. All right. Richard from Wittensville, Massachusetts writes, how do you feel about hymns written by women? I'm starting to love hymns and how rich in theology they are. And recently I found out that there is a, there is life for a look at the crucified one. That's a great hymn. Is it? It's uh, written by Amelia M. Hull. Yeah. And uh, Richard would like to know, is it okay for me, an adult male, seeking, uh, seeing as hymns can have a, a way of teaching? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a rich, rich hymn. And uh, Amelia Hull uh, never married. Uh, God used her as a single woman her whole life. She wrote a lot of uh, hymns for children. In some really rich hymns, but that one that you mentioned, we don't really sing it much anymore. Uh, it's virtually gone from the hymnals of modern-day evangelicalism, but the words in it are powerful. Rick, I, could you like pull that up on the screen, that hymn? And I'll, I'm going to let you read some of the words uh, to us. I remember singing that as a new Christian and uh, occasionally I'll go to a church where I will still hear it. I should probably give that to Matt as a request uh, in terms of, but but is she teaching or exercising authority over man? And the answer is no, uh, not at all. Uh, she is actually doing what God commands in Ephesians chapter 5, where he gives the marks of a spirit-filled life, and he says, we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. There's a very similar command in the book of Colossians, where Paul admonishes us as Christians to let God's word richly dwell within us. And then he says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that is a wholesale command to the whole church. And so there is a teaching that goes on, but not the kind that comes through preaching, through the singing of a hymn. And God gifts women as well as men with musical abilities and some great hymns that we have today in the church that we continue to sing, uh, Annie Crosby and others. You know, they're, they're done by women. And so they're not teaching or exercising authority because the hymn is being sung one to another. And this is why it's important that hymns have good theology in it. Read, read a few lines. I see you brought it up here. Yeah, so it goes, there is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. Then look, sinner, look unto him and be saved unto him who is nailed to the tree. And the stanza goes, 
or the chorus goes, look, look, look and live. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. Read one more verse. Oh, why was he there as the bearer of sin, if on Jesus thy guilt was not laid? Oh, why from his side flowed the sin-cleansing blood, if his dying thy debt has not paid? See, those are really rich, rich words. Those are powerful words. And one of the reasons that a lot of churches no longer even sing traditional hymns, and I'm not against new songs. The Bible says, sing a new song unto the Lord. And so it's important that the church also continually develop new songs. But sadly, a lot of the songs that are done by Hillsong and these other groups, you know, they just lack any depth at all. Uh, sadly, many of them are deficient of sound theology. And they these little ditties, that, you know, things that you say over and over and over again, not that there's anything wrong with repeating something, but sometimes there's just no depth to them. So, again, the teaching and admonishing in Ephesians and Colossians is in the context of what we would call the song service. And it's clear from Paul's admonitions that, that women are to participate in the public exhortation and encouragement through song in a service. So the qualified silence of 1 Corinthians 14, I ask that a woman be silent in church, it is a qualified silence. And I have mentioned that in my series on what a woman can and can't do in the church. But she's a very godly woman, went home to heaven as a single woman, but had a profound effect, especially on children. In books that she wrote, devotionals that she wrote for women, so much of her teaching was done uh, over children and two other women through some devotionals she wrote. And she contributed to the body of Christ with some really rich hymns. We probably need to sing more of them today. Let's go to the next question. All right. Deborah from Tingsboro, Massachusetts writes, Do you know of a Jewish charity that is reputable? I would like to donate to one, but I don't know of any. I see on TV about donating to the Jewish people starving and from the Holocaust, but they show the same footage over and over, so I don't know if it's a good and reputable charity. I want to be sure to donate where the money is going to the people. Do you know of one? You know, that's a good question because some of these ministries, sadly, that prey on evangelicals who love Israel, and every evangelical ought to love Israel, uh, the Bible does not teach replacement theology as Luther and Calvin taught in many in the so-called Reformed camps, hyper-Calvinistic camps teach today. That, that's, that's bad. That's not accurate doctrine. But the Bible does teach that God has a plan for Israel. He used Israel to bring about the first coming. He'll use Israel to bring about the second coming. But there are some of these ministries out there where the administrative costs are huge, people are on big salaries, and the actual uh, folks being helped is significantly reduced. Um, With that said, I think if I were to encourage you to put your money towards one, it would probably be Chosen People's Ministries. Uh, They are a great Messianic Jewish ministry. These are believing Jews who uh, affirm that Yeshua, Jesus, is Hamasiach, the Messiah. And they do a great job, even in Israel, in trying to meet the needs of some people. Because, you know, Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with me. And as highly advanced as Israel is as a nation, they have their poor as well. And uh, some of these um, Christian messianic ministries like 
Chosen People's Ministry does a superb job. And that's a good question to ask because, you know, God tells us to bless Israel, bless those who bless Israel. And God's not done with the Jewish people. He is going to use them to bring about the second coming of his son. Uh, I know the uh, commercial that she was referring to, uh-huh. and I just happened to look at what the salary of the CEO is. It's uh, only $824,000. Well, you see, there you go. Case in point. I didn't know this because I didn't research this ministry, but that's a good example of, you know, maybe an abusive use of funds. Um, and that, that's really pretty radical anyway. And so, you know, they, again, they, you know, Christian people are the most giving people in the world and you see people in need. The Bible says we should do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. And so you see a Christian who sees someone in need and they want to help, especially Jewish people, because they want to bless Israel and they end up giving. And again, sometimes it doesn't translate into much actual help. Mm. All right, Yvonne from Hilton Head uh, writes, what books of the Bible were written by King Solomon? That's a good question, and the reason it's a good question is because uh, there's a book called The Wisdom of Solomon that's a part of the Apocrypha. And interestingly, if you look at the 39 Articles of Faith, which is the document that gives uh, what Episcopalians or the Church of England believe— the Book of Wisdom is included in that. I was at a funeral in an Episcopal church uh, many, many years ago, and it was a young man who was 18 years old, and I was privileged to lead him to the Lord. He'd been in that church his whole life, but no one had ever given him the gospel. And a neighbor who was a member of our church said, I've asked his mother, could you possibly come and speak to him and he had about a month to live, and his cancer was not curable, and I was able to introduce him to Christ. And in the course of time, his mother came to Christ as well. So that was a good thing. With that said, I went to the funeral, and they read from the Book of Wisdom. And the Episcopal priest said at the end, this is the word of the Lord. And all the people in unison said, thanks be to God. And I thought, that is not the word of the Lord. That's from the Book of Wisdom. And it's not part of the canon of Scripture, the 66 books that God did inspire. But we do know that Solomon wrote, of course, the book of Proverbs. He wrote the Song of Solomon, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. But the apocryphal literature that comes between the Old and the New Testament, like the book of Wisdom that some have attributed to Solomon, it's written about 250 years before Christ long after the last book of the Bible, Malachi, was completed. It's not written by Solomon. But again, you have these liberal scholars who date other books of the Old Testament. Um, the, the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, you know, they'll put Daniel, you know, 200 years before Christ. And so, you know, they mix and jumble all these things together. But he just wrote those three books, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, also you could title it Canicles, Um, And again, the titles that we have for the books of the Bible are not inspired, much like the chapter and verse divisions, uh, other than, you know, like you open up the book of Genesis and the first uh, word in the Hebrew, Barashit bara Elohim, Barashit is the word in the beginning, and in the Septuagint, 
It uses a Greek word, genesios, and so we get our word Genesis from it. So the Jews call it parashit. The Christians call it Genesis. In fact, the first five books of the Bible come from the first sentence of the first verse of those five books. But but the titles are not inspired. That's why you can have a title for, you know, three different titles for the book of Revelation, which I walked through when I taught the book of Revelation. Uh, I have a King James Version of the Bible, uh, one particular edition where it says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Well, again, it's the book of Hebrews, as we traditionally call it. Most King James Bibles don't even say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews, but one Cambridge edition publishers attributed it to Paul. But again, that's not inspired. Those titles are put there to help you to find the books as you're looking for them, just like the chapter and verses are added about a thousand years after the Bible's completed to find your way around. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Gabriel from Pineland, South Carolina writes, as Christians, how are we called to view politicians and politics in general? Because it seems like right now there's a lot of quote unquote idol worship of politicians from Christians and the world. Well, Gabe, that's a great question. And you have to do it with discernment. The question is, you know, should Christians be involved in politics? And, of course, some of God's choice men in the Bible were themselves engaged in politics. Joseph, so to speak, was a politician in the sense that he played a role in the government, as did Daniel and Nehemiah and others. So there's nothing necessarily evil about being involved in the whole process of government. And God has called us to be salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And so the sodium chloride blocks sometimes in the first century, the sodium chloride could be bleached out long enough such that it lost its saltiness and it was only good to fill in potholes. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives all light to everyone in the house. And so he says, we're to let our light shine before men in such a way that they will see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. So we're to be both salt, and the chief function of salt in the first century was not simply to enhance the flavor as we typically think of it in our day, but it was a preservative, and it preserved fish and meat and so on, and you salted things that made it last so that you could use it later on. And saltiness in the life of a believer has a way of preserving righteousness, but if we become saltless through compromise— Uh, then we've lost our ability to influence the world. If we take our light and we're ashamed and we hide it under the peck measure, the basket, uh, we're not doing the kingdom of God any good. So to bring it down in the political realm, Gabriel, as you asked, you know, uh, there's an admonition in terms of every believer's responsibility in 1 Timothy 2. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that you may so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity uh, and the motivation for this is that 
it's good and acceptable because God desires all men to be saved. And he wants us to live in a peaceable atmosphere so that we have really unhindered uh, ability to preach the gospel. And not to mention, he's really describing all categories of people here. And God cares about kings. And some kings are converted. Some kings are not. And so on January the 20th, a new president will be sworn in. I'm not convinced it will be Joe Biden. I suspect it will be, but I hope it's not. Uh, If indeed there's fraud that has taken place through election machines, I hope it is discovered. That's what I pray for, uh, that if there is indeed fraud, then this is the greatest slam against the history of this republic since it was founded in 1776, if indeed votes are being stolen. Um, But whoever is the president on January the 20th, we are committed to pray for that person, and we're told to honor the king, and so we respect their office. I will never endorse the baby killing of a Democrat and some Republicans, though it's not in their platform. It is in the platform of the Democratic Party. That's why I could never vote for someone who embraced the Democratic platform, because one, not only do they embrace the murder of little babies in the womb, something that God hates. People say, well, there's other things that are important to me. Look, you prioritize things. And all this innocent blood that has been shed, some 60 million Americans, some 600 million worldwide through abortion is a stench in the nostrils of God. And now we are legitimizing all kinds of perversion and evil So whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you pray for whoever is in office, even if that person is not your choice. God has called us to be salt. He's called us to be light. And he's called us to vote our consciences. We we live in a republic. Uh, We live in a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And if you don't vote or you're silent, you don't speak up like God commands us to do, for those who have no voice, like the innocents in the womb, then you're not carrying out your God-given responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the sad thing is, is that a lot of evangelicals voted for Biden. What a wicked, evil thing to do. What an uninformed thing to do, that they would vote for someone who sanctioned the murder of little babies in the womb, who sanctions perversion. That's evil. And if indeed he becomes the president... And if indeed they gain the sedent, but even if they don't, by executive order, you'll be wishing you hadn't because we're going to see freedoms significantly restricted against Christians across America. And there will be a great price for us to pay. Maybe God's going to use this to wake up the church. I don't know. Anyway, we're out of time. Good question. Thanks for being with us today.